Hello, I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. And on this podcast, we'll be talking to James Geyer, who is in charge of wigs and makeup for Cincinnati Opera. James is a lifelong Cincinnatian who's had an international career in his chosen profession and whose family has roots going well back into the 19th century here in Cincinnati. I'll be talking to James about that great family history, as well as what it's like to be behind the scenes in opera and deal with wigs and makeup, without which, of course, all our performers would look less spectacular on stage. James, before we talk about your career and your work with us at Cincinnati Opera, I'd love to start with um, a couple of your favorite opera performances. What have been a couple of your favorite memories in the theater anywhere, not just Cincinnati? Oh, anywhere. Well, that opens up. Oh. I would say here in Cincinnati, for sure, um, Margaret Garner was really one of my favorite experiences. Also, working on it was was an important thing, I think. And, yeah, having... um, such an amazing cast come together and tell this amazing story. Florencia comes to mind as well. Oh, Florencia and el Amazonas yes. by Daniel Catan. Thank you for pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I was not going to attempt it. <laughs> no. Um, but that was quite magical, too. Very magical, yeah. So and both of those operas, as I recall, have heavy wig and makeup requirements. Was that part of the joy for you in taking... Uh, Because let's remember Margaret Garner had, of course, a large African-American cast Mm -hmm. and almost equally large Caucasian cast. Was that part of the the joy and the challenge for you to create these two very diametrically opposed worlds? Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a challenge, Uh, um, uh, something that I hadn't tackled really that many times before in my career. Mm -hmm. So uh, Florencia was a sort of a different set of challenges. Makeup was for that. Set in the Amazon on a boat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean there you know the period work was um was sort of intense and and I think makeup wise it was actually more challenging than the hair work. So some uh, opera, you know, I mean y- if you're doing la boheme, there's more emphasis on hair, less on makeup especially when you're doing a very earthy sort of naturalistic sort of production with a sort of cinematic bent to it, but <clears throat> You know, when you're doing something like Aida or Turandot, that's a very makeup-heavy right. type of production, and uh, and you have to transform people into different ethnicities and, you know, full-body so, makeup and all those wonderful things. Oh, yeah, especially <laughs> for our production of Aida. Oh, that's, that's to, a big job. But I, call it the gold, I call it the Goldfinger Aida because you have to turn <laughs> the, you have to paint those dancers nearly entirely gold. Fortunately, I don't personally do it, but yes, I have a crew that's always very eager to, to take on that challenge. <laughs> it's uh, You can't be shy about it. Before we uh, go forward, though, one of the things you mentioned just now about Margaret Garner in particular um, hits on something for me uh, that you as a Cincinnatian uh, will be able to speak to, I think, very, very personally and eloquently. The story has a, has a local resonance, doesn't it? And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and your family goes back into the 19th century here. Not quite to the Civil War, right? But maybe not, just not a, to the Civil War. But not, just not too a, long thereafter. Not too long after, yeah. yeah. Mid-1800s, I'd say. Wow. Uh, I should do my research, but um, yeah, several generations ago. What about Margaret Garner as a story was compelling to you? That you recall, just the story itself. Oh gosh, I mean, just the the struggle and the the fear, and you know, I mean, obviously Cincinnati being part of the whole Underground Railroad network, um, it's just it's very very pertinent, and and uh, it's a 
Cincinnati was perfect to to do a, to present an opera like that. But um, gosh, that opens a whole can of worms. It's it's an emotional piece, you know, yes. and it's 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 uh, you have to sort of keep your professionalism about you when you're working on something like that because it's it's compelling and heart wrenching. Well, the Mayfield Plantation, where Margaret Garner was enslaved, is an easy drive from downtown Cincinnati. I think what we forget sometimes in this 21st century is what a complicated relation this city had with the Civil War, being on the border between North and South, having so many of its merchants, most of their livelihood when the war began, their livelihood was cut off. Absolutely. Because we sided with the North and Kentucky sided with the South. Yeah. And uh, the fact that slave catchers had pretty much free reign in Cincinnati mm-hmm. during that horrible time. Yeah. So it's a. It it's was a horrible time and uh, a challenging time for sure. Yeah, we were right on the border, so you know, <laughs> we were hot spot. So. What do you recall for us as one of the first things that got you excited about what had become your profession? Where does it, where does it begin, this love of creating theatrical hair and making people look fabulous on stage. Does it go back to your childhood? I mean, how did, how did you May. fall into how did how did you fall into this profession? <laughs> fall into it is exactly what it is. I mean, I, I mean, at, at age twelve or thirteen, I would never have imagined. Um, although I sort of fantasized about becoming a Hollywood makeup artist by the time I was maybe fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. You know, I sort of I had a um, uh, sort of, what's the word? Diana Ross was one of my sort of, you know, favorites. And, you know, all the glamorous people in in that heyday of pop music and, and Hollywood. So I sort of envisioned myself becoming one of those makeup artists. So Hollywood's not where I ended up. <laughs> and um, I'm actually grateful for that because that's just, that's a completely different world and wouldn't be as fulfilling as the operatic world, so. So as a kid watching movies, were there any particular movies that caught in your mind to say, that's what I want to do? A film or a, a, a series of films or maybe even, are, are you were you one of those kids as you began to be interested stayed in the theater as the credits rolled to see who did the oh, waves absolutely. in the makeup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always the last to leave the cinema. Uh, me too, but I wait for the music credits. Well, and yes, they're always at the course, very end. They're at the very end. They shouldn't be, but <laughs> that's where they are. Uh, it's hard to to remember specific. You know, I did like watching the old musicals. That you know, black and white or color. That um, I mean, real musicals where people sang beautifully and weren't heavily mic'd and all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they were trained classically, so that's that's one of the reasons it sounds different. But yeah, those those films fascinated me and and all the theatrics, but on the screen, you know, the cinematic screen. So here's a question I've always wanted to ask someone who does what you do when you talk about films. You say that you were romanced by some of the um, the early great musicals, which were primarily black and white. I mean, color comes into the movies as early as the mid-1930s, of course, but still, well into the 40s. It's not until we get into the 50s where just about everything is done in color. So what do you know about the challenges for a wig and makeup artist doing black and white as opposed to color? Is there, did, was that something going through your head when you see a, gr- a great old black and white film what color is that wig? What right. kind of tone is that makeup? Do in, in your conversations with makeup artists who maybe came before you, were there particular challenges of doing someone 
making someone look glamorous in black and white as opposed to color? Or is it the other way around? I think it's the other way around, really. I think black and white just lends itself towards, I mean, you know, just the sharp contrast and the light and shadow. And it's limited to just varying degrees of grays, basically, you know, grays and to, to sort of pale, almost white. Uh, I, yeah, it's it's. Um, I think there were not so many challenges, but the makeup intensity obviously had to be exaggerated, right, for black and white, so that quite, would read quite more. a bit. Yeah, yeah, because you don't have color to really differentiate the lips from the eyes, from the you know. So yeah, I think I think there were heavy paint jobs for the black and white <laughs> movies, but that that interests me because I. I tend to be a little heavy-handed sometimes because, you know, we present these operas in large houses by and large. I mean, not always smaller theaters. That's but. a wonderful way to jump into what you do for Cincinnati Opera because you have been our wig and makeup professional for how many years now? How many seasons? I think this is 14. 14 seasons. Yeah. So. And you bring up a great point. Making someone up for a night out is very different than making someone up who will read with a dramatic face 150 feet away. Sure. So what's the difference? The difference is just, um, you know, the intensity, um, uh, basically just how much contrast. You can get away with distance is our friend, we like to say. With the, uh, <laughs> I with so often say distant <laughs> lens enhancement, too. Right. <laughs> Indeed. So for the opera, of course, because performers aren't necessarily cast based on their their age or their you know the color of their skin or anything like that um, you can get away with lots of you know paint work and contrast with highlights and shadows where up close of course it's going to look a bit silly or frightening for that matter almost grotesque sometimes almost grotesque yeah, yeah. but from a distance it it works because if you do light sort of film kind of cinematic makeup it's lost it's i mean Interesting. it's that's disappears. So you really have to you have to lay it on, as it were. Let's so. spend a little more time on makeup before we move to wigs. Of the facial features, which are which are the facial features that give you the most challenge and most fun and the most range to do your art? Is it eyes? Is it nose? Is it lips? Is it cheeks? What's the what's the what's the area where your paintbrush, as it were, has the most fun? Oh gosh, it, it's it's hard between lips and eyes. But you know, often performers are very particular about the way their lips will look oh, on stage, so? and they won't let you go far uh, away from their their actual shape. So that's challenging sometimes because you're trying to make someone look mean or you know devilish or, or uh, whatever, cruel or deformed for that matter. Right, and that's you know that's sort of. It's you're treading on territory that's a little little dicey. For eyes, though, usually performers let you do almost anything, and that's that's really where you focus most of your time. Besides sculpting the face to to, to literally um, chisel features, you know, if someone is a little more portly than not, or if they're not aging well, you know, then uh, you have to you have to do all that kind of thing. But the eyes are where you focus because they're the most expressive part. Right. Not that not that the mouth isn't. Of course, it's moving a lot because they're singing. But um, I'd say the eyes. The are eyes right. have it. As the they eyes say. have it. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're aging someone or making someone super glamorous or or much younger, you know, you there 
really, it's all through the eyes. All right, so. a little trade secret. Is it easier to make an older person look younger or a younger person look older? Uh, <laughs> that really depends on, on the face. I mean, there are oftentimes young performers who age so easily, and, um, and so it's not a challenge. There are others that, you know, just no matter what you do, they're just going to look like they have a lot of makeup on their face, unless you're using prosthetics, right? And actually creating jowls and, and saggy a flesh, thick nose, and that yeah. sort of thing, like a Cyrano de Bergerac kind of thing. But I, I do, I think for me, it's not as challenging to age a young person as it is to, to make, uh, you know, a middle-aged singer a lot younger than they really are, because you're sort of doing reverse age and. Um, bringing light to where it's, where it's not hitting anymore. So, <laughs> you know, um, that's the more challenging. I love aging people, but making someone look a lot younger has its challenges because unless you use tape lifts under the wig, which we do sometimes. You mean we, a, a little, a little, a, a, temporary a little, a little face nip lift. and tuck. <laughs> exactly. For the night. With special adhesives that, you know, are, un, are put on before the wig is on. So that all of that elastic that's underneath yanking yeah. <laughs> the flesh up, defying gravity is I need to is see you hidden. before the next opening night, James. <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> Let's go to wigs because that's fascinating to me as well because uh, there are shows where uh, people often will wear their own hair. There are shows where it's a combination of people wearing their own hair and wigs. Mm -hmm. For you, how do you determine? Is this something that you work closely with the director on the concept of who's going to have a wig and what does it look like? How does the process start when you come well, to a production? It depends on, you know, some directors really hand a lot of that decision making over to the, the original costume designer if we're lucky enough to have them in-house working with us, you know, getting everything on stage. <clears throat> This morning, I had a wonderful meeting with with our costume designer for La Boheme, and she's she actually makes my job very a lot easier, I should say, um, because she's got great ideas. She's very flexible. She's uh, very open minded to you know suggestion, but um, she she knows in her mind what she would like to see, and then it's my job to bring that to fruition, you know, to to make it physically happen. Um, and the director just, you know, is not interested in, in really, I mean, then there are other directors, on the other hand, who who want all of the say and, and sort of really, really steer you in specific directions for each character. So wow. it, it really depends from production to production who, who I really correlate with, you know, and, and, and um, work with. Closely. So this produ particular production of La Boheme is set in the 1930s. Boheme, yes. of course, the original story is the 1830s. Yes. Do you, in your research and in your knowledge that you bring to the profession, are you are you making yourself particularly cognizant of what men and women's hair in Europe would have looked like at the time? Is there a, some sort of an attempt to say, this is exactly what a girl of 23, of modest means, who couldn't go to a hairdresser all the time, this is what she would look like. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, depending on social status, you know, th that really determines, even though it's the same time, you know, where, where you are um, in society uh, and your financial situation really determines exactly what route we take. You know, did, could you afford to go to a hairdresser or not? Hmm. If you were a man, you know, were you at the barber frequently or, or are you 
are you sort of a scraggly dude who's you know trying to make ends meet but so well, yeah and Colina actually says in the opera in in honor of this particular occasion he's going to make his first visit <laughs> to a barber exactly. he's a penniless student so this was going to be a real outlay for him to yep. actually go and get a, a, that's, a cut in the shave major as it were. step in the right direction yeah <laughs> so so what are wigs made out of that are used in the theater uh, it's the same thing, the same materials that are used for, you know, for cinema, for film, for, it's all human hair usually. Um, we, we do use synthetic sometimes, um, often if, if a wig is supposed to look artificial, mm-hmm. that's the route to go. Um, and uh, so, it, it, you know, we even use other types of hair, not horse hair, but often yak hair, which is yak hair, quite a bit more expensive than human hair. Because, well, there are fewer yaks than humans, I suppose. Yeah, there are fewer, yes. <laughs> it's all supply and demand, isn't it? It's really end? true. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, synthetics you can get away with, but, they, you know, they're, it is plastic fiber. And so lighting, depending on lighting situations, you know, you have reflection or shine problems. And human hair is really the best way to go if you can afford it. And, of course, by and large, we use lace front wigs, which duplicates, you know, a, a real hairline. So most... Most audience members are not even aware that those are actual wigs. I mean, they think that the performer has grown their facial hair, and they haven't. They, it's been glued on, but that's all hand-knotted one hair at a time onto this material that we call lace, wow. which is like a, a very, very fine netting, which is extremely delicate. Mm-hmm. That's why the chorus cannot remove their wigs. They're not supposed to adjust them and um, because they are, they're pretty, you know, they're delicate. And expensive. And, and expensive, yeah. so... Do you encounter sometimes the same challenges with performers with wigs as you do with, as you talked a little bit earlier, about facial makeup and particularly, let's say, you know, some performers are very sensitive about their lips. Do mm-hmm. some performers really have a thing, men and women, about how a wig should look and how a wig makes them look? I mean... Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, it's a very personal thing when you, you know, I mean, of course, the the ideal is not to make yourself look just more glamorous than you really are. I mean, it's, it's changing you completely. So, I mean, even though you're not just enhancing your own look, um, it, I, honestly, I think sometimes men in the chair, particularly tenors, are, are even more particular than sopranos. A, a lot of time women just will hand it all over to you and just trust you. I mean, unless they've had a bad experience, you know, and that, right. that's very often the case. But uh, it's it's an individual thing. So I've I've had really particular male clients, if you would, you know, uh, in the chair, and and they will refuse to wear certain things or or have their hair look a certain way, makeup as well. You know, I mean, either it's too much or or they don't want to look that different than they really do in real life. And of course, they're they're cast to play a certain role, so they have to be willing to. To, go. to make that kind of a transformation. Exactly. And there so, are some performers who love it, don't, aren't they? Who say... I'd say most do, at least in the opera world, um, ballet as well. But yeah, I think they, they're really... It's exciting because then they really feel like that character when they've gotten into full hair and makeup, whether it's a wig or their own hairstyle. But um, once we get to that, that part of the process of, of putting the production on stage, it's, uh, it's very helpful. And then they finally get it. I was fascinated once by the very first time I met the famous soprano, Anna Netrebko. Oh, yes. And walking in Lincoln Center Plaza, this was at the beginning of her career, 
I was introduced to her by her manager. I knew her name already. And here was this petite, kind of average-looking girl. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, I saw her at the Metropolitan Opera. And the person who walked on stage was this incredibly glamorous, stunningly beautiful woman in amazing makeup and wig. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure performers, to an extent, love the the thrill and the transformation, don't they? They do. Yeah, I mean, you work with directors sometimes who want to go with a more cinematic, like, no makeup kind of look and uh, want to use the performer's own hair and nothing else, no, no wigs. And that's often a big disappointment to particularly opera singers because they, they rely on that, they count on that, and they look forward to the transformation. Well, you, you raise a very interesting point because opera is, of all of the um, art forms in which there is uh, speaking, so theatrical plays, movies, as well as opera, it's the most stylized and the most, ar- the most artificial of all. And so I would imagine there's a certain psychology that goes along with, I'm, I'm doing this thing that's so unnatural in the first place. Let's make it as big and as bold larger as... Larger than life, yeah. Yeah, larger than exactly. life as possible. Yeah. So let's talk about you a little bit. You spend your summers with us here in Cincinnati, at Cincinnati Opera. Where's home? Home is actually here in, in Cincinnati, in a suburb northeast of the city. So I, I, I used to be a city resident living in Mount Adams, but I decided to return to the burbs. So I live in Indian Hill. And the Geyer name in Cincinnati is historic. You've got family here going back, what, four generations almost? Four generations, yeah. Yep. Who, was the fir- who were the first Geyers in town? Oh gosh! Oh, the first, the first <laughs> antecedents. Let's say if they had a different, if it was a different side of the family. When did when did the Geyer family come to Cincinnati? Eighteen hundreds. It was the eighteen hundreds, mid eighteen hundreds. Um, they weren't. Uh, they migrated, emigrated from from Germany through by way of New Orleans, and then ended up upriver here in Cincinnati. And then my great grandfather Frederick A. Geyer uh, and another gentleman founded a company called the Cincinnati Milling Machine Company. They, they purchased a, uh, a small company that was called the Cincinnati Screw and Tap Company. And uh, from there, they started producing award-winning machine tools that then became the world over famous. And uh, my grandfather, uh, Frederick V. Geyer, uh, Fred's son, then created uh, an even larger company, and then eventually basing it in Oakley, which is where the big, you know, the the main factory and f- and uh, foundry and headquarters was based, and it became international. They had offices and plants in Birmingham, England, Tamworth, the Netherlands, France, Asia, uh, all over the all over the world. So, and then eventually, it was a Fortune 500 company for uh, decades, actually. And my dad ran the company for for a little while, twenty some years. So that's not a little. He while. was the last CEO of from you know that that was, well, the last guy or involved with the company. So it's but it's the now, company is no longer right. Well, it's now called Millicron. So it's uh, it's it. um it went through some tough times. The the company Cincinnati Millicron, which is what Cincinnati Milling Machine eventually became, because they were so diversified that. They made more than just milling machines. They, you know, they all the controlling devices and these manufacturing systems were well beyond just milling machines. So, and especially with the advance of um, robotics, um, mm-hmm. industrial robotics, and plastics processing machinery like 
extruders and blow molding machinery, the things that make your Coke bottle, you know, I mean, that's, that's when they changed the name to Cincinnati Millicron because it was more than just those types of machines. It was so diversified. Um, but yeah, it's just called Millicron now and they, and they make plastics processing machinery. But the, the name Cincinnati had to disappear because the machine tool division had been sold off. Uh-huh. And that's what made the company so famous worldwide. So, And some of the, of the machines made by your ancestors' company uh, normally reside in the Cincinnati History Museum mm-hmm. uh, and the Museum Center for a time when the center is being renovated. You can actually see a couple of these machines at the airport. At the airport. Uh, part yeah. of that, part of the many of the ex- ex- exhibits have been moved to the airport temporarily, and there's a big Cincinnati mm-hmm. machine that looks like it makes something important. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> the, it's it's a relatively small machine. Some of these machine tools or manufacturing systems that they made um, are larger than this this recording studio. Yeah. Four times the size of it. Wow. So, so you got your start in wigs and makeup how did you train for it by as an apprentice what did you, what's how does one become a wig and makeup <laughs> artist i didn't really even know there was such a thing as a wig maker um, but i ended up being accepted into a training program at the san francisco opera in 1982 uh-huh. and i had just graduated from brandeis university outside of boston as you know a theater arts major so with a very distinguished theater program yeah i mean was, leonard bernstein was a professor at brandeis exactly for a while, right? it was a, it was a really a good time and but what do you do with a Bachelor of Arts in theater? I mean, I, I certainly wasn't going to be on stage. I performing was not my thing. And it's it's just too scary. And um, so you know, I knew I would have to. I would I would want to work professionally behind the scenes. And I just uh, I I because of my interest in um, in makeup, I thought, well, I'll just go to this training program. I was accepted, which really shocked me because only ten people from around the world were in this program once a year. So I thought, oh my goodness, I, I'm going to San Francisco, here we go. And little did I know that really the focus was mostly wig making, you know, that old European art form with, with a lot of training in makeup. And, and, you know, oftentimes the students do one or the other well, but, you know, I chose to focus on both. And so my career has been, you know, sort of a dual uh, dual sort of thing with makeup artistry and wigs together. So in the profession, are there men and women who specialize in one or the other as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you're Actually, a polymath from the get-go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, at the Met, um, for a long time, until maybe only five or six years ago, the wig department was separate from the makeup department. Hmm. So, But in... in most American companies, they're they're the same department. But yeah, when you hire professionals to to assist you, they may you know be stronger in, in period hairstyling work, or they may their emphasis may be on actually just building the wigs, which you know takes up to forty hours to make all hand knotted just for one wig. So um, wow, you know. And then there are the others in your in your shop, if you want to call it that, that that are really great, strong excellent makeup artists but really have no interest in or you know shouldn't be doing hair (laughs) so (laughs) i mean it's hard to do it all but we try you've worked on a huge variety of operas are there one or two that were particularly challenging from just from a technical point of view and why Hmm. 
Well, there have been quite a few. I think uh, AIDA is is really often the big challenge, depending on, of course, there are different productions of AIDA, and some are very, there's a lot of emphasis on the costuming and, and um, really intense hair work, but um, and of course makeup as well, because you're doing lots of body makeup and things like that. But And it's a huge it's number just of a, people. I mean, it's just massive. A cast I mean, for a cast for a, the actual principal members of the cast are not so much, but you have an enormous chorus. Yeah. Dancers, quite often, lots of supernumeraries. Supers, oh, supers! But you don't have to make up the animals, right? No, <laughs> no. That's luckily we do not. They, they're gorgeous just from the get go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we we have makeup and hair stations all throughout the theater backstage just handling people, especially if there are quick changes involved. And, you know, sometimes people have to shower off full body makeup because they're, the dancers may then next be silver or gold or, wow. you know, or, or pale or something like that. And, and wigs are being changed in every imaginable corner of the backstage areas because, you know, your crew is 20 people and that's barely enough to just get the 150 that are, you know, involved in all these switcheroos. I'm, I'm amazed completed. because uh, when the Metropolitan Opera HD broadcast first started, one of the beautiful things they started to do was take you backstage. I don't know if there's been a thing about wigs and makeup, but I remember watching a stage changeover between two mm. acts and the army of people that has to come on stage to turn Act one of Manon Lascaux into Act two of Manon Lascaux. And you have Absolutely. a similar army changing people's makeup mid- during the show, during right? During the show, yeah. As well. And wigs sometimes. Yeah. If Intermissions hair. are not a time to go visit and have a cup of coffee. I mean, we have only that set amount of time, often it's about 20 minutes, yeah. and you have a lot to accomplish. You know, and you don't, you're not dealing with just one diva or the star tenor or, you know, I mean, it's... It's everyone. It's it's everybody. Is there a particular show you haven't worked on that you'd like to work on? Is there an opera that you've read about or had a colleague work on and say, you know, if I could ever get my hands on X, I'd have a blast. I would like to. I would actually like to tackle Cyrano de Bergerac. That's that's something that I'm I'm curious about. And, of course, and I have... I did once... Uh, I was lucky enough to work at Michigan Opera Theater up in Detroit, and uh, and the maestro there, the founder of the company, of David course, Dekier? yes, he's he just had a wonderful celebration of of his many years there, and um, yeah, I would I would like to tackle that just because, because of the nose, right? Because of the nose, you, well, that's the obvious, but I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from top to bottom, I think it'd be it'd be a neat project. One of the things that's always fascinated me about the life backstage is that um, the singers, some more nervous than others, um, really rely on the stage crew. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even in my short time here working at Cincinnati Opera, I've heard so many stories about um, singers uh, having, developing really wonderful relationships with the stage crew. But you're probably quite often the last person a singer talks to before they go on stage. It's true. Um, um, how does that factor into your role? Uh, do you find yourself being sort of a father confessor sometimes? I mean, <laughs> are you the soprano whisperer, as I like to call it? <laughs> oh, yes. All of those and, and other other descriptions as well. Yeah. I mean, you besides the dresser who often walks the performer to the end, you know, the edge of the stage and may put the shawl on at the last minute, often it's it's both of us together walking the performer to, you know, the edge of the stage just before they 
performing. Yeah, there there are nerves, you know. There there's a lot of hand holding. I call it bedside manner. I mean, I I think you know you have to sort of figure out how much conversation the performer is really interested in, or if they really need to just sort of disappear within themselves and mm-hmm. really just get into character. So. You figure that out quite often. I mean, there are some makeup artists I've observed that just like to yak and yak and yak, and you can tell the performer is not even with them because they're they're getting ready for the you know something very very challenging, either so, vocally or just you know the acting aspect of it or the physicality. So yeah, it's so you are the soprano whisperer, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> one of many. But I. Uh, <laughs> You talked about in your training uh, the idea of this incredibly detailed art form of making wigs. Uh, Here now in the 21st century, has technology affected both halves of your profession? Are there things available to you now or techniques that have evolved even in your short couple of mm, decades in the not business? Not really, no. It's still I mean, kind of old-fashioned. I would say, yeah, the wig making certainly is old-fashioned. It is definitely one of those old art forms and really the best wigs are the handmade wigs, the old tools, the same things are used, obviously the materials, I mean, Hair is hair. 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 (laughs) Exactly. And the foundations, you know, sometimes materials have been, they have improved over the years. You you know, in the old days, all the foundations of wigs were made of silk, or many of them were, and cotton and other things. So with synthetic fibers that last longer and don't rot, you know, that's that's improved a bit. But that's that's really not within the last 50 years because, you know, but um, makeup, the things have gotten a lot better, and of course, depending on whether that's HD um, lighting or or the, the way certain things are filmed, if something is being you know videotaped, that affects things. But um, yeah, that's a question I wanted to ask you. Has the uh, increasing prevalence of LED lighting in the theater mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has that presented challenges to the makeup artists? Have you had to adjust the way you create a look because mm-hmm. of the different kind of light that is becoming more and more used. Yeah, it actually, you, you can get away with less as far as painting to create a certain effect, you know. Huh. Um, when you're trying to age a performer um, and, and in the past you've been able to really create the chiaroscuro, you know, the, the Italian technique of creating shadow and light and folds in the skin whether or not, you, you really can't get away with doing that anymore. I mean, if it's if it's that kind of lighting, then prosthetics are the way to go because it's too it's too sharp and it's too detectable. So yeah, interesting. So we it's a little to, bit you know I think the analogy for me is a little bit the difference between um, the thing about analog recording that people love, which is a certain kind of patina, a certain mm-hmm. kind of film, let's say, over the sound that makes it warm and beautiful. And one of the first criticisms of digital recording mm-hmm. was that it was too clean. Too clean, yeah. And they've made adjustments in the last couple of decades, but it's it's very similar to for someone like myself who grew up with the, the soft, beautiful roundness. Okay, the ticks and the pops and the scratches as well of yeah. analog records. And I remember the it's first real. time I heard digital recordings, I said, oh, this is ugly. Mm-hmm. This is too clean. This is too clear. This is too, too real. Yeah. And you're dealing with the... One of the things I love about your profession is you're dealing with both a hyper-reality and an irreality because you're making things grander than they might be and you're changing people 
yes. at the same time before our very eyes. So how, what's your measure of a successful performance, that you've done your job well on an evening? Because you do go, get to go out in the house once in a while, right? We, yes. It's, it's important to take a look at, you know, and see exactly how things are, as we call them, reading, mm-hmm. um, whether it's close, you know, to the orchestra pit or way far back in, in the, uh, the house, the audience. So, yeah, we take peaks. Um, I, let's see. What's your measure of success? I guess really <laughs> it seems silly, but when, when you know, you're at a cocktail party or, you know, an opening night party afterwards and you, you overhear patrons saying, well, that couldn't have been you, you know, you, what do you mean you were wearing a wig? I know what a wig looks like. I mean, when people have absolutely no idea that that soprano or mezzo-soprano or tenor shows up and that's, that was not the way they looked on stage... They, they can't believe it. So then, I mean, you know that you've, since they didn't even realize that they were wigs or that that person was heavily made up that you've, you know. You, you've really done your job success. well. Yeah. You've created the illusion. And our art form is a lot about creating an illusion. Certainly, yeah. Vocally as well as, vocally as well as visually. Yeah. So you talk about the, the challenge of the intensity of that time. Talk a little bit about what your performance day is like. Do you have, like singers and conductors, do you have any particular routine in a performance day? You take a nap in the afternoon, no, have a steak before no you go to the theater? No, time for naps. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's funny. People often wonder, well, why are you going to work, you know, at 9, nine o'clock in the morning? I mean, the shows are at night, aren't they? Well, yes, they are at night. And indeed, we start the makeup process often two hours prior to curtain to be able to get you know, the five or eight or ten principles makeup's done. You have help, of course, but all of the work that goes into creating the wigs, all the period hairstyling, maintaining the show after you've opened it. I mean, after every performance, things don't look fresh and pretty, and they have to be restored to exactly, you know, I mean, as the same as with costumes and things like that. Things have to be pressed. The wigs have to be reset, restyled, clean, the glue is in the lace, makeup is, you know, places where it shouldn't be. So It's I mean, wandered, as it there's, were. <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole day's work before hitting the stage again in the evening um, to, to get everything ready. So. so your performance day is work all day and work in the evening in exactly. the show as well. They're, they're long days, you know, and, and there are some times when you have an 8 o'clock or 7.30 performance, and you may be able to come in. If it's a lighter maintenance show, you may be able to come in at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That's sort of rare, but wow. it's it's delightful when that happens. But, you know, here at Cincinnati Opera, when we're also preparing the next one or two operas that is about to open, and you're still building things and styling the wigs and all of that, you have that to do as well as whatever show is up and running that evening. So they're, they're pretty long days. Uh. And it's a pretty long year because although we have your full and undivided attention for the Cincinnati opera season, you're a much in demand wig and makeup artist throughout the country. What's a typical year for James Geyer like, uh, fall, winter, spring? Oh my, well, it, it varies because I, I do enjoy also working with straight theater um, companies. So I do work for Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. Um, 
then that's sort of throughout the year, not in the summertime, so there are no conflicts there. Um, and the ballet is what I adore working with the dancers and, and with Victoria Morgan. So I work with Cincinnati Ballet quite a bit. I created all the wigs for, for their Nutcracker. So the, newer, this, the newer one that the they have been doing nutcracker, in these last few years. I, yeah, right? I actually was fortunate enough to work on the previous Nutcracker as well. It was a very different sort of more Victorian um, setting. But um, the new one is fresh and wonderful and exciting. And we actually took it to the Kennedy Center in November, the week of Thanksgiving. So we quote unquote toured it and that was wonderful being in Washington DC. So um at a know, very at a at a very tumultuous time of course around yes. the time of the election. Most oh, recent yes. election. It was <laughs> But you work with other opera companies as well. Pittsburgh outside. Opera, yeah, yeah. That's that's really sort of my other main gig, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that keeps me quite busy through, you know, the sort of late fall, early winter. And then there's sort of a break um, and I return and do their two big productions in the mid-April to mid-May time period. So so is there a James Geyer vacation time? Mm, yes, right after we, <laughs> we, we close here at the end of July, I'll definitely look forward to a vacation. Because a regular spot or do you travel the globe? No, what, we what's like your to go to Cape Cod where I summered as a kid. My mother's from New England and so, you know, for years we, we spent every summer there or part of the summer. Don't I remember there was a big family home in Maine too, or well, something like that? Yeah, when my when my mother sold the house in Indian Hill in the mid '80s, she decided to return to her New England roots, but she didn't want to go back to Cape Cod or you know Massachusetts in general. She wanted to go up the coast where there were less people and less crowds, in theory. Smart move. So she she yeah had a wonderful home there, right on the coast and and uh, near. Bar Harbor, Maine. So we spent a lot of time up there. And my father had a summer home up there as well. He spent much of the year in Cincinnati. He was still running a big company, but but he would, you know, escape up to Maine where it was less humid and get out of some of the Cincinnati heat. So you do get a chance to unwind from time to time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you work on lots of operas that are familiar to you, operas you've done many times before. Um, but from time to time, you either get a brand new opera uh, that no one's ever seen before, or an opera that's new to you. So what's um, what's something you've done recently of that sort, and how do you prepare for something that's brand new to you? Well, of course, read read the script or the libretto and, and make sure you know the story from top to bottom. Um, and, yeah, I recently worked with Pittsburgh Opera on a world premiere, their first ever in their 78-year wow. history. Not as old as Cincinnati Opera, but... Uh, sort of surprising that that was their first world premiere. It was called The Summer King and set beginning in the 1950s and then flashing back to the 30s to tell the story, you know, shifting up a decade at a time as the story unfolded. And it was nice working with Denise Graves again, who was in our Margaret Garner, and uh, just a a wonderful cast um, unfolding the story about an African-American baseball player who was famous in Pittsburgh and never made it to the major leagues, but um, it was it was nice. And so, of course, mostly focusing on period research for the 30s and mid 40s, figuring out how, even with hardly any time for quick changes, how one wig for the chorus women would work, even though we're shifting up 10 years huh. from the 30s to the 40s. And of course, the, that's a pretty distinct change. Fortunately, hats helped out. <laughs> so I, <laughs> because they would disguise the fact that the silhouette had not changed appropriately, but 
when you have no time for massive wig changes. Put a hat on. You got to, yeah. You switch hats and make the costume tell the period change. But, Fascinating. Uh, yeah, and the men, we had to do you know special period haircuts that were appropriate both on the African-American cast members and, and others. So. so you bring to bear your education in various eras and the books that you have studied and the photographs you have examined or the, the lithographs or drawings, if it's before photography, of every nearly every single decade. Oh, I mean, yeah. I can remember a production that we did of Traviata in 2008 designed by Alan Charles Klein. Yes. And the setting for Traviata is the 1840s. The original story is from the 1840s, but Alan Charles Klein wanted to move it up to the 1870s because the costumes could be more glamorous. Yes. So you needed to go along with that as well and create wigs and makeup that were more appropriate to To a slightly different era than it was originally conceived in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that team, they're, they're wonderful to work with. I mean... Um, they're very particular and detail-oriented, so it, they, it, it was very clear how I would, you know, please them with each and every character. In fact, even specific chorus members, male and female, had a, a sort of a special look or character. Um, so that was fun. That was fun and very detailed. But, yeah, you have to adjust. The, what operas make you laugh? Oh, <laughs> I suppose the the Rossini operas and you know I mean I love the comic operas that are out there and and uh, thank goodness for surtitles because that that's very helpful. What I an mean, amazing transformation! To, oh. you talk to performers who say who've been around, let's say since the there aren't that many anymore because surtitles have been around since the seventies. But thankfully, uh, yeah. if you were to go to a production of The Marriage of Figaro, let's say pre nineteen seventy, you'd only get laughs if you were in Italy. Exactly. But now performers are so gratified because people get the jokes. Yeah. It's important to get that feedback, you know. And so when there's nothing coming back from the audience because you can't understand what's going on on stage, the surtitles make it so wonderful. So So you love the comedies. But what operas make you cry? Lots of them. I would say all the, the Italian wonderful Puccini operas, you know, La Boheme and Madama Butterfly. They, it's a sure sure bet that there's not going to be a dry eye. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, even listening to music, you know, excerpts from an opera, as soon as those strings start, and I'm not even aware, possibly, of what's happening or what's being said, it's, there's just a special quality to the music that just makes, makes you just lose it. So, <laughs> yeah, quite a few of them make me cry, honestly. Sometimes, you know, it sparks memories of, you know, a, a parent that you've just lost or family members or just memories of other things that, you know, have been uh, special in your life. So well, you say something music. very beautiful about the art form itself, that it is, uh, it's an active memory sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where it comes from, but it tugs at your heartstring. It bypasses it your intellect. It yes. goes right to your heart. Right to your heart. It doesn't work for everybody, you know. Some people just aren't as affected, and I, I feel sorry, but that's... You're glad that you are. I'm glad that I am. James, before we part company, I'd like to ask you some quick questions with quick answers. Oh. What did you have for breakfast? Oh, I had my favorite cereal for breakfast, which include, you know, basically it's, it's a natural version of Cheerios. I'm not going to say the brand name, but <laughs> keep it simple with, of course, organic blueberries and, uh, so and you, a little yogurt. So you get a little power breakfast. 
little power breakfast. Are there two or three television programs you watch fairly regularly when you have the time? Well, how can I not include RuPaul's Drag Race? I mean, that's that, that's one of my favorites. Of course, it's all it's heavy wigs and makeup, so what the heck? I mean, it's sometimes inspiring, often times hilarious, but uh, <laughs> I can't think of, you know, a series, so this is not a quick answer, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> I'm really, I'm not, I'm not addicted or, or hooked on one show in particular, although I like Blackish. That's one of the funnier ones on TV, which I think is probably underrated. But Is there anything you'd wish you'd studied more in college, looking back on your college career? Uh, more literature. I think it would have been nice to, to focus more on, on some of the wonderful things that have been written by brilliant people. Um, I, I sort of got so wrapped up into the whole production end of the theater arts department that that oftentimes that was overlooked a bit. But uh, There's always yeah. time to read more. Always time, <laughs> yes. I don't do enough reading. Periodicals and short articles, are, that's, that's sort of my thing. But Since I, you're a lifelong Cincinnatian with lifelong Cincinnati roots, do you have some favorite Cincinnati restaurants? When you do get that uh, rare chance to go out, so many. This has just become such a "quote unquote" foodie town. Um, I miss some of the old ones, like the Masonette. I still wish that that was around. But you know, there are marvelous places like Boca and um, uh, Metropole at the Twenty One C Hotel. And gosh, it's, the list is long in this town. I actually cook a lot at home because I, you know, I'm concerned about health and ingredients and where the food comes from and. So, you know, eating out a lot is challenging that way, but I do enjoy it. What's the best career advice you've ever received? Oh, that's, boy. Maybe not a short answer, but. No, that's not. <laughs> uh, Something to ment a mentor. Just be true to yourself, you know, and, and, um, and be honest and, and kind mm. to people. So there's uh, there are some people out there in in my particular end of the business that that tend to tend to be a little rough mm -hmm. on the performers or when they're dealing with directors or ignoring what they've been asked to do and just sort of sticking to their own guns and not collaborating this is a collaborative effort it has to be opera and all of theater and so it's important to to always listen and and cooperate and be true to yourself so you let on earlier that there are performers that you like outside of the world of opera. Do you have a favorite singer of non-operatic music these days? Who you use a go-to a go-to singer for you? Oh, they're the I like the old school sort of um, R and B singers. You know, I was a big fan, of, as I said earlier, of Diana Ross, and a lot of her popular work is you know, um, well, the, the things that people don't know are particularly interesting to me. Music that never got really heavily published or, or played on the radio. Patti LaBelle, people like that, you know. I mean, I'm sort of old school that way. Um, Nothing wrong with being old even school. Even Whitney, I mean, my goodness, what a voice that was. She 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 could have been an opera star, I yeah. think. That's you one know, of the fascinating things pipes. for me about some of those great R&B singers is that they probably got their start in church as so many African-American singers did. And some go to opera, some go to popular music, but the voices are powerful no matter what. Unbelievable. They choose. Yeah. You travel a fair amount. Do you have any particular travel tip that you pursue that uh, a listener to this podcast would enjoy knowing? That I pursue? Yeah, something that you do that makes the traveling life a little easier for you. Oh, oh easier. Well, hmm. 
<laughs> nap on planes is one thing. No, I, I, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I try to eat right when, when traveling because it's, it's, it's easy to, you know, fall off a good diet and, mm-hmm. and uh, then you don't feel so good. But, and traveling is challenging, you know, because you're away from home, you're missing people or your dogs in my case. I, I hate leaving them at home. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered that question well. <laughs> What's your favorite stress reliever? Oh, I'd say hanging out in the kitchen and cooking, just coming up with something that you've never done before and, you know, enjoying the creative process and making a mistake if you have to every once in a while or, or often. That's, oh, that's the that's, joy. That's, of, that's the best. That's the joy of cooking. It yeah. really is. Experimenting yeah. a little bit. Absolutely. Last but not least, because you uh, have seen so much opera and have been around so many young performers and, um, and as you say, you know, you involve yourself in the social aspects of opera, which is lovely. But um, would you have a, uh, a tip or two or a suggestion or two for either someone who's just getting into opera or for a more experienced listener on how to enjoy opera? What would you say is a, a good mindset to go to an opera, maybe if you're going for the first time? Well, I think I think it's often helpful to just do a little reading or research and 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 find out what you're going to experience, know the story a little bit, or at least just some of it, um, and understand maybe some of the history of of it or what the you know what the story is about, and um, you know just just go with a little bit of you know be slightly prepared or if not more. Um, I think that's helpful because if you, it, it's fine to go cold turkey and just completely be surprised and not know at all what you're diving into. But mm-hmm. I think that's helpful to to know a little bit about what you're about to hear or see. Well, James, both. You've devoted your entire professional life to this wonderful, crazy art form we love of opera. Um, it would be easy to become jaded, but you seem to have stayed fresh and in love with opera. What keeps you in love with opera? Well, I mean, every every production that you work on is like starting new again. I mean, it's you've done a number of La Bohème's or Madama Butterflies or what have you, but every experience is different. You have different casts that you work with. You have different directors, different types of designers that you collaborate with. And so it's never just a rehash. It's never just, oh, here we go again. Because, I mean, even night to night, every performance has its own special sort of quality that makes it unique. There never two are two performances alike. So that's it's very exciting. I mean, it's one thing to see a movie over and over again, and of course, then the more you see it, the more things that you might have missed the first time you you see again and understand. But with opera or anything that's actually put on stage, every performance is fresh and new and different its own unique animal, so to speak. Well, thank you, James, so much for sharing some of your family history, some of your own recollections, and what is clear, your incredible passion for this profession. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. (laughs) 